are mightier than your dick. Now that I have your attention, my name is Casey and this is the Unbenched Podcast. For too long, women have been kept on the sidelines in the sports world, but not the same sideline our male reporter counterparts get to work from. We've been transferred to a different stadium and been told to sit down. No longer will women accept being spoken to about games as if we pick our teams based on jersey colors. No longer will women be kept out of the press box because we don't have the same pro-caliber experience as the guys. No longer will women accept being benched. Every episode, I sit down with a woman who has broken the glass ceiling to make it in the sport media world. We'll discuss her story as I try to get a sense of what it was like for them to get to where they wanted to be. Join me as we have the important conversations and continue to fight the uphill battle to change the culture of sport media. And join us as we continue to speak sports like a girl. Welcome back to the podcast. This week, I was joined by Laurel Walzak, an assistant professor at Ryerson University in the sport media program and all around powerhouse in the industry. So Laurel comes from a background from the business side of sports, which is something I know almost nothing about other than that one business class they forced us to take this year. Um, I didn't retain anything. So (laughs) I was really excited to get her on the show and bring her perspective, her view on completely different side of the sports industry. And through our conversation, we cover everything from her experience in boardrooms to bodybuilding. I'm lucky enough to have gotten to work with Laurel within her GXS lab, which we also cover. And I can attest to her being a true leader for gender equity in the industry. I'll warn you, this is a longer episode, so I hope you've got a snack and a coffee or a tea and let's get rolling. So I just want to thank you so, so much for joining me um, on today's podcast. I'm really excited for people to hear what you have to say. Um, so first question, I start everyone on this on the hot seat right away. Why get into such a male dominated field? Well, I don't think that when I got into it, I ever considered it a male dominated field that I grew up playing sports, grew up, grew up watching sports and loving sports that I, that's what I wanted to do. So it didn't dawn on me mm-hmm. that it was a male dominated field. And I've said this before, and I, I believe I've been quoted before that I have the most incredible role models of parents that, uh, that two things. My dad is a feminist has always been, he had three daughters, but it's, I've always say it's, it's actually was before he had daughters. He always believed in, in rights for women and then had three daughters and was like, you can do anything guys can do. And that was a very, the minute it, it, men didn't even come into the picture in terms of you can do anything guys do. It was like, you can do anything. And, and was always making sure that we were active, that we were um, driven, involved in many different things, worked on our studies, worked on our sports. We were privileged in the sense that they were able to provide us opportunity to play sports. And and then also very much all the time was the, the type of dad that stood up for us. So, and then my mother was the same. She was very, uh, she has this quote. The quote is, it's a long one. Do what you want to do because you want to do it be accountable for your actions. So that was always one of those things that left a bit of a, this door wide open for me that my mom allowed this, uh, even as a young kid to be able to try things and do things. And that whether that was uh, positive or negative, if I was going to make a bad choice, like I could, if, as long as I was accountable for it to an extent, yeah argue why I did it, then, <laughs> then it was sort of accepted in our family. So I just, uh, 
I, I just always had that. That was the first part. And the second was, I just love sports so much. I, I couldn't stop playing sports. I was very competitive and that's where I wanted to be. Yeah. What sports were you like put into, right? I know the stereotypical one is every kid is put in soccer or at least every kid with too much energy is put in soccer. But what did you kind of start in? So as a kid, I loved, you know, the school had cross country and I loved cross country. I was, I loved track and field and, uh, and I was good at sort of the medium distance to the longer distances, but I was horrible at speed racing. Oh my gosh. I could, I just, I loved it, but I could never catch anybody. I'm like, <laughs> why am I always last running so fast? I loved it so much that I tried so hard. Uh, but I was, I played all the school sports. So I played basketball. I loved basketball and I, I played in uh, grade school and high school. Then my parents introduced me to tennis. I was a, a tennis um instructor through university and skiing. So I would say those were sort of my three main sports. I used to get tennis magazine as a, as a kid, and I could read all about Martina Navratilova and Chris Ebert and John McEnroe and Stefan Edberg and all those people. And, and, and then I was a skier. So on the weekends when I wasn't playing tennis tournaments, we would go skiing. So we had a ski again. So we were fortunate to have a place to go skiing every weekend. So we went skiing and I got into skiing and became, and I, the part that I loved, I started to realize was I loved the competition, but I really loved the coaching more. So I became a, a tennis instructor. And that was my job for, since I was 14, actually through Till university, it was my summer job. I became head pro of a club for four years wow. and a summer club. And then I also taught skiing in the winter. So that was, I, I, that the coaching was more the natural side to me, which is, yeah. you know, and you can probably see that in my dealings today, that kind of mentorship coaching is a big part of who I am. Absolutely. I, I also like loved the coaching. Maybe it's cause I wasn't very like excessively good at anything, but I could do everything. I think that's why I fell into coach. Watched a movie once that said like those who can't do coach. And I'm like, yeah, I guess that's me. Yeah. Um, did you ever like <laughs> make a point to want to coach girls more than boys? Oh, Good question, Casey. I don't think so. I, I coached girls and boys in tennis because I was, uh, there was this competition and I lived, I grew up in Burlington. It was called BIG, Burlington International Games. We <laughs> played against Burlington, Vermont. <laughs> so we'd go every other year, we'd get on buses and drive 10 hours. And I coached girls and boys tennis. And that was fun for skiing. I mean, it was just more recreational weekend yeah. kind of skiing. And then in, I did coach a girls basketball team. I think I was in high school and they were in grade six or seven or something like that. So no, I don't, I don't, um, specifically recall wanting to teach boys or girls yeah. differently. Uh, I would say that I did find with tennis that it's intrinsic. I don't think that it's something that you look for, but I did see some young girls kind of looking at you as someone that they looked up to as a role model. And that really was powerful to me because yeah. I, I think it's a duty that we have as women, but it's also intrinsic that you just naturally do it. So yeah. I really, I love teach. I loved coaching girls. Yeah. But I also had some fun with the guys because it's a different dynamic. For sure. So speaking of sports and kind of what you were involved in, you did competitive bodybuilding for a while. Is that right? I, yes. Yes. And I was March. I don't even remember the date now, but it was March 15th that uh, or 14th. And I was ready to do my 2020. So this is March 14th or 15th, 2020. And I was six days away from competing in my third competition and COVID hit and the, it got canceled. 
Wow. So I had done all that training and then boom, it was just canceled. I was so devastated, really, truly. And I, I haven't been... And I, not a lot uh, phases me like that, yeah. but I was really devastated because that's a lot For of sure. very hard work. Oh my yeah, gosh, no, I, I, I love imagine. it. I love, and I was doing a different competition the first couple of years, the first time times I did figure mm-hmm. and this, the third time I decided to do bikini because it was more my body type. It's a little bit, a little bit more slender and smaller. Mm-hmm. And, and it, I found it just to be more fitting to my lifestyle in terms of like having a full-time job. Yeah, for sure. So wait, you said that 2020 would have been your third. So did you only start three years ago? Five years ago. Okay. So 2015 okay. was my first one. And then 2018 was my second. And then 2020 would have been my third. Wow. What inspired you to start like pick that sport up a little bit later in life? So, well, I would, a couple things. I had just finished a huge feat in my life, which was completing my executive MBA. And that was quite grueling and rewarding and a huge challenge. And I've always been physically active. Yeah. I, you know, I get up at 445 every single morning for as long as I can remember. And I go and I do my workout and that's religious. Mm-hmm. However, uh, during the MBA, that was tougher to do because I had work and I had the MBA and I had different priorities. So I, I tried to stay as fit as I could, but not to the extent. So when I completed that, I decided I needed a new goal. And I, I decided that I work out so much that let me take it to a different level. And I also was uh, doing, an, uh, like, I was having a milestone birthday. <laughs> so I decided, I was like, okay, if I'm going to be this age, then I'm going to have a wicked body and do the best that I can. And I'll never forget, like, the training was amazing. And it was tough and so much fun. And I was standing on the stage in Mississauga, at the Mich- I think it was the Mississauga International Center, with my husband beside me, who was my coach. And, and there's 500 people in the audience and they call my name and I turn to him and say, Oh my God, is this career suicide? Because (laughs) there I am, you know, I'm uh, where I'd finished. No, I was at FitNF at that time. So I'd already left the NF, the NHL, just finished my MBA. And here I am in this teeny, tiny, tiny fabric of a bikini in clear four inch heels walking across the stage showing my body and it was also at that moment there was a lot of things going through my mind which was like okay breathe and go and don't trip okay (laughs) just don't trip so I you do the I did kind of fall backwards a bit I lost my balance but I did it and I won so I won, wow. I won my, my group. I won, they have little gold medals. So I always say I got a gold medal and this is a joke. So I got that and I realized I'm like, this is my sport. Yeah. So, so I do find, and I'll do find this, that, that after that experience, I, I question it. I say, why do we have to wear the teeniest of tiniest bikinis? We get dressed up so gorgeous. The hair, the I didn't do extensions, but the eyelashes, the hair, you have to get up at three o'clock in the morning to get your tan, four o'clock, you get your makeup done. You don't go on stage until like 11 o'clock. The women oh are last. Gosh. Women should go first. You, women uh, are yeah. last. <laughs> you, you do your thing. It's great. And 
the guys walk out in bare feet. Now there are, there are part of the sports you walk out in bare feet, but I, I was like, this is, it's so hard. You want us to do all this in these high heels and you turn and so many of the women are, to- you're almost toppling over half oh the time, gosh. but it's, I felt so invigorated and so free and so liberated. And I met amazing women uh, that are doing it as well. One woman had lost something like 300 pounds. And so she wanted to be on stage. And so she, there she was one woman just had a baby and I had my, my reasons for doing it. It was oh, yeah. Casey. I I, I, w- I recommend to every single woman that if you can actually ever compete just for fun for you do it because oh it's, it's amazing how you can transform your body. And then by the way, within a couple of weeks later, it goes back to like fairly back to normal. <laughs> <laughs> Just that brief little window. Yeah. Um, I think it's really interesting though, how you wondered if it was career suicide. Cause that's something that I had always thought of watching these from the outside. I was like, I wonder what the difference is between what a guy is thinking right before he walks on stage versus what a woman is thinking. Because I mean, not that I can ever get in a guy's head, but I guarantee you none of them are thinking, Oh, is this career suicide? Um, so what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what do you think the difference is there? Well, I, it was real for me in that moment. Very, it was a a fleeting second Mm -hmm. and it was always in the back of my mind because I serve on government and corporate boards and people see me as a professional. Yeah. I, again, you don't normally see, let's say your colleague or let's say in in your case your professor in a tiny bikini that's not something normally that you see in people's personal life however what i do see is people posting their pictures of their golf trip and their racquetball trip and their tennis match and their skiing vacation and i i had a moment of oh my gosh what the hell am i thinking this is that's why i said this is my sport i i I train i work hard and so i very much like gymnastics let's say or beach volleyball where women have to wear these tiny outfits this is that sport so I'm not saying you have to I guess we maybe we could change it but I get why it makes sense to wear as little as possible to see the physique and the men do too by the way the men do wear as little as possible as well so that's that's not a thing uh you need to be able to see but I would say that men are not thinking I, I I can't speak for men but I would guess and presume that they're not thinking that they're thinking I worked really hard and I want to show off my body for sure and and that was me I want to compete I want to work really hard I want to see how much I can get uh out of my body and for for sport and I want to compete and I want to win and I did yeah <laughs> I actually feel a little bit bad that it crossed my mind now. Mm-hmm. It was a real thing back then, but now yeah. it's like, no, deal with it. And and I hope that picture, go, like in the Globe and Mail interviewed me for this, uh, uh, Marjo, her name is Jean, and she did a, she was doing a thing about the, the new trend of women over 40 doing these bodybuilding competitions. And when she called me and said, I want to do this, I thought, yes. And Globe and Mail, are you kidding me? Of course, I want this picture blasted all over because I don't care who sees it. In fact, yeah. I think I want you all to see it. Yeah. I think that's a really refreshing way of looking at it because I don't think it's a, probably a rare thought to have thought like what you did, even though now, if you're saying like, not regret it, but like you have different feelings on having that thought now. But I think, yeah, as someone, especially as someone who's on her way into the professional field, if I had a dollar for every time someone told me like, oh, be careful what you put on the internet, it could come back to ruin you. Like, even if it's something less, say, revealing than that, I wouldn't have to go into the professional field, I'd be rich. Um, 
So I think that's a really refreshing <laughs> attitude of your idea of like, I worked for this. So yeah, like, look, look what I did. Um, that yeah. could also be the competitor in me who's like, look, look what I did. Look what I won. Look at it. Um, yeah. Well, maybe it should be a varsity sport. Why not? Oh, it's, you, yeah. You know, th- what's the difference between doing bodybuilding and, you know, playing hockey? It's it's a sport. Exactly. You know, you show up, you get judged swimming, uh, you know, gymnastics, you get judged. Um, I mean, all figure skating, you get judged all these, you know, you're getting all these numbers and you're standing and you're posing in front of, in front of. And so, but uh, I'll say the word, but, because I do think also that back then I was very specific about making sure that people understood that this is a sport. Yeah. And then I'm competing in a sport versus and then that's the way I positioned it however that is the truth yeah for sure I would say that I pushed it a little bit more because I had concerns at the beginning but I wish I never had those concerns absolutely I also think like I mean this is what I think you can let me know kind of your thoughts but I think those concerns are more ingrained in us than they might be natural like I think the environment that we grow up in or at least the environment that I've grown up in is you're there's always a warning about like careful with this careful with that so it's not necessarily that it would be my natural instinct to be concerned. But I think once I like equate what I'm doing with what I've been told my whole life, I think that's where that concern would come from. But I don't know if your experience would be the same. Well, I guess the other thing that what we can't control in this is let's say somebody does, I don't know, a board position. If I'm looking for a board position and somebody finds that picture and says, oh, they think they have a belief system in their mind that that is wrong Mm -hmm. or inappropriate. Okay. I see nothing wrong with it. I see it completely not inappropriate. And however, there's going to be people who think I don't, as a, as a board of governors or board of directors, I don't want this person on the board because of this. And that's where I just think that it's exceedingly unfortunate. And that again, that my male counterpart is says, you know, posted a picture of, of him standing with Wayne Gretzky at a golf tournament for heaven's sake. And that's okay. Yeah. So it's, uh, I, I, I would argue that till the end. However, I may not get an opportunity to argue that because the judgment may have already been made for sure. Right. But I'm not, then I don't want to be on that board because that's not, you know, or if I got on, they would know my liberal side and my (laughs) gender equity and my diversity and like, um, the whole, this is, these beliefs are, basically created by hegemonic masculine norms that and also i'm going to argue that the women's bikinis and the high heels originally were created by men saying this is what you need to wear oh for sure and so you're like you're create if if it's if it could be a man or woman i don't know a man could say on a board i don't want her because she's like that or a woman could say it they're going to have their own judgments based on their own beliefs Mm -hmm. if that is the case i also would then argue look you created the rules not me (laughs) as well yeah yeah it's like i'm playing by your rules why am i being punished exactly for for doing essentially what i had to do Mm -hmm. um that kind of brings me to my next point so a lot of your academic work and the direction of your initiative center around gender equity and diversity in sport so where did that passion start from oh from beginning as a i don't know as a little kid i always was advocating for the marginalized person and I think also because I was so driven and felt like I had so much value to contribute to the sport industry. And I did experience some, um, some fairly significant inequities. I, that 
that I felt as though I had to fight a little bit and that I had to, you always have to work harder, perform more, demonstrate with results. And I, I don't sometimes, I don't, the one thing, yeah, I would say that I had to fight and I, and I always had to advocate for myself to, to get what I, what I needed or wanted or deserved or to get to the next level and be part of the boys club, which I, I still feel back then. I don't know if I ever really was part of it. I would say that I, uh, in my sport community today, I feel very welcome and, a, a val- I, I, you know, I still, as far as I'm concerned, I'm a valuable contributor on the team. And I, I've had that since the beginning. So I would like to say that when I say I had some, some significant inequities, I've been passed over for promotions, which I felt as though were mine. I have had deals that I've done that people stole. I've had senior executive men try to kiss me in the hallway of a on the cheek and almost miss and hit the corner of my lips ew, and, me, ew, ew. and me left stu- like a left. And I'm not just talking about like, Oh, a, a, one of those, sometimes people don't know they should shake hands or side hug or oh, side kiss. Yeah, not yeah. that I'm talking about a deliberate go in ah, to, I'm going to, yeah. oh, <laughs> it was, is right. <laughs> I've had standing at like galas and you're all dressed up and you've, you, someone, people, you know, you do the picture and everyone's got yeah. their arms around one another. And I've been sometimes groped. the hand goes lower. Yeah. And yeah. roped on your breast and groped yeah. on your side, a little extra feel that I've had those things happen to me and they revolt me. And I never said anything. I, I told the story recently. I've never told anybody about, about the senior executive uh, hall of famer, by the way, who did do that to me in the hallway it wasn't in the hallway. Actually, it was like kind of in the hallway, uh, walking past my desk area. And so that's where it happened. I I can explicitly remember it. I never said anything about it. And I'm going to be telling a story about it soon because I, uh, because I'm doing a disservice to young women. Those things have, so now let's just fast forward to today. I experienced those things. I'm now in a position in my career. I'm in a position in my maturity level and in my knowledge and my experience to say, I am going to stand behind young up and coming women to make sure that they know that at any point in inequities occurring, that there's someone they can turn to or someone that they can discuss it with, or if my voice needs to be bigger than theirs in a moment, then they know that I'm going to come in and help defend or help position or, 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 um, or cheerlead in some cases is very positive. It could be all that you're cheerleading. So over the years, I've just, it's, it is, I I can't get it out of my system. It's exactly who I am. It's the first thing that comes to my brain. It's the first thing that comes out of my mouth and it is, and it's, and it's diversity. It's not just gender, but of course, myself being a female, uh, I have experienced a lot of situations and I, by the way, I still do experience them. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> that my favorite is when people say, I say something and then they look to somebody else and say, well, what do you think about what Laurel just said? And they have to justify and uh, provide the credibility of what I just said. And then the person I'm speaking to goes, oh, okay, then I'm, I trust because that person oh. said it's right. Then I trust what Laurel says is okay too. That kind of stuff just drives me bananas, but I don't, I, I don't have a problem calling it out now and yeah. saying, Hey, did you really have to ask that person or you're speaking to me? And I think there's a time and a place for that. Mm-hmm. But I also would say that <clears throat> 
sometimes these are patronizing moments. Oh yeah, for sure. And for me to hear that, knowing that like your status and everything that you've accomplished and what kind of you bring to a conversation, the fact that people are still questioning that, like it's very easy for someone who's coming into the industry or just trying to make their way to be like, Christ, does it ever get better? Like if you're having to deal with this, like what, what hope do I have as like a, a 20 year old student? Um, but do you remember the first time you experienced kind of blatant sexism in the workplace? Cause I feel mm. like that's definitely like a, not a scarring moment, but I feel like for most women that work in these kinds of fields, that's definitely a moment that sticks with you. I would say I've had two moments one when I was being coached tennis and one, I don't specifically remember the first, but perhaps it was my internship when I was at George Brown college. And it was in my internship okay. at, at the NFL that I had experienced uh, blatant sexism and racism because at the time I was dating a Punjabi Sikh man. I've been dating him for about five years and um, somebody had called him a derogatory name to my face and I stood up to it and also some uh, other sexism related bullying mm -hmm. at, that I had stood up to and, and then left the internship, uh, unfortunately, and never looked back, but I did stand up. I, I absolutely brought it to the attention of the, the, whoever were the, the, the senior people at the time and said like, this is, this has occurred to me. So I even knew back then, um, that would be one. The other one, I think. When I was being coached in tennis, I had a, I would say a love hate relationship with my coach because I looked up to him so incredibly much. And I was on a team of, I don't remember the exact number, but I want to say it was 10 guys, two girls, eight, eight boys and a great, wonderful team. I, I mean, all of these people to this day, if they were to call and ask a favor, in, in fact, I'm still in touch with the, one of the women, her name is Sophie. She's one of my best friends. We're still in touch to this day from playing tennis or my very first tennis tournament actually was against her <laughs> <laughs> and some of the, and the guys were fantastic teammates, but I did feel sometimes bullied by my coach and sort of this psychological power and control that, that really wasn't fair. And I knew something was wrong with the mm -hmm. coaching and there was a point where I got a lot better and then I changed coaches and I was winning all of a sudden I started winning tournaments and I was winning, um, against others that I normally wouldn't beat in tournaments. And, and it was, a it, I was playing better because I think I had, I was out of that bullying relationship. Yeah. And I don't, I haven't told, I don't even think that I've ever told Sophie that, but I, I really felt that when I reflect, I don't think I knew it at the time, but when I reflect back today, I went, yeah, you know what? That was a toxic coaching yeah. relationship, unfortunately. Yeah. I think there's a lot of value in, like you said, like not being able to recognize it down the line, mm -hmm. um, especially as you work towards more equitable situations, as you can reflect on things that you once thought of as normal and realize that, hey, that maybe shouldn't be my coach, maybe shouldn't be bullying me if he's trying to get me to to win things. Mm -hmm. um, but again, that's a whole other podcast. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah. But I would say that that was, you know, you're as a male role model for me, he, I looked up to him. He was everything to the team. Everybody loved him. I loved him. We, we were all so close for so many years, but there was this weird and it, this only ever occurred when the two of us were alone. Okay. 
It never occurred with everybody else. So that was a little bit of an odd thing. But but the point is, is that this was a coach relationship where in sport, I'm looking up to a male role model Mm -hmm. and it was a toxic relationship. For sure. Um, So after all that um, is said and done, now you're at Ryerson um, as an assistant professor in sport media. How did you end up here? So a friend of mine over at TSN, his name is Mark Millier. He told me about this position. There was a a sport media position at Ryerson and that Ryerson was specifically looking for more of a sport marketing, sport media person from the industry that had some experience in the sort of the sport business, commercialization, marketing, uh, revenue generation side. And at the time I decided to, that that was, I was, I was work. I had was I started a business after my MBA called Fitnef mm-hmm. and I was working for that company and also on the board of directors. And I decided at that point that I did what I needed to do for the company and that I was ready to really officially make my career change. Mm-hmm. So I made the change to academia and I was able to convince them, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. I mean, I everyone always used to say like, Oh, you're the luckiest person. I say, yeah, I am very lucky. And I also, but I also spent 15 years, 17 years working my butt off to be able to get to a position that I could have these types of conversations and get this role. So Ryerson has been amazing to me. I adore Ryerson. I adore our faculty. I adore our Dean and his group. I adore my chair. I like my program director is a great colleague and friend and I've got great colleagues. So, and I, I just, and I, I actually feel as though I am in an environment where I can take all my learnings and experiences and be able to have impact on students and impact on industry. And I am, this is exactly where I need to be and want to be. And Mm -hmm. I love it. I absolutely love it. I am so grateful to be at Ryerson. It's my, it's a perfect cultural fit for me. Amazing. Well, I'm very happy you're there because thank you. you know, then Thanks. this wouldn't have happened. Um, so <laughs> how long have you been with the sport media program? I know it's a relatively young program, but have you been there since the beginning? Did you come in afterwards? So I would say that I came in and it, uh, it was in its third year. Okay. Yeah, it was in its third year. So I've been, I'm in my fifth year of working there. Okay. So at the end, end of this, our next July will be five years. Oh, wow. And um, I love it. I, I can't say that enough. Did I mention that I, that I love it? <laughs> it might've come up. Um, do you remember what the culture around women in sport media was like when you first joined the program? Because I know that's something that um, I've heard a lot of, like in my role as student rep, kind of the fight for gender equity amongst the program. So what was it like when you first got there four years ago? Mm, there's, so there's a few factors here. One of the factors, I believe the first year of the program, because the, when I got the students, they were in their third year. So starting okay. their first, first semester of their third year, that there was 50% male, 50% female. So the number of uh, males and females, then the next year, I don't know the exact numbers, but it decreased. Let's say it was 70, 30. And then the year after it was 80, 20. And we started to take a look at what is happening why did it go from 50, 50 to 80, 20? And then also hearing, so I'll talk about what I hear from the industry or from the, from this, from the students. So that was the first thing. So we started to notice that. And one of the things that we did, we wanted to take the bias away from the, from basically the admissions process, because what we used to do was have the students provide us their portfolio. We would interview them. They would write a letter 
and write a couple of questions and get their letters of reference. And it would be a huge process. We would meet one-on-one with them and then we would select them and then go to admissions and so forth. And we realized at least Joe, uh, Nicole and myself all realized this is a bias because we're just selecting, you know, I, 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 everybody pretty much is the same. I mean, you either get an 80 or 90, so you're going to get in or not going to get in. I can't control that part, Yeah, but 700 students apply and there's only 70 positions. And here we are, a number of us are like, it's in the QP instructors also um, select. So, so there's a bias. We took the bias away and we suspected that generally we wanted to take that away because there's another that's involved. And it's actually part of my research, which is we're asking people, show us all the work that you've done in sport. And then we're mm-hmm. going to uh, give you a grade in our mind, if you should get in or not. When realize when that, when essentially it is, you should come to Ryerson and we'll teach you all those things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, right. So um, th- we did that. And that's one. Now the, the, the first year that I was there and the second year, I felt as though, and I did get comments because you, because you get evaluations Mm -hmm. that from a number of students that said, professor Walzak knows nothing about sports. Professor Walzak is, um, I asked her a question the other day and she couldn't on basketball. She couldn't answer it. She knows nothing about sports. Um, she, she only talks about the business of sports. She's uh, second, you know, substandard to Joe stuff like that. Wow. And I was really angry at that because there is understandably. A, so <laughs> there is a study. There's lots of studies out there that female professors of male dominated programs tend to be judged at a higher rate, hence these comments. Now they maybe genuinely felt that way. And, and maybe I have to look at the way I teach and I don't know, maybe, I mean, if they asked me what the score of the basketball game was last night and I was like, I don't know, 101 to 111 to 102 Hornets played the Raptors. I think that was the score, but maybe it was, maybe it was 111 to 105. I have no idea. And, but I would get ridiculed for not knowing that fact. Wow. So I would, so I, I, I did see that there was a little bit of this, what, what is referred to as toxic masculinity and potentially a little bit of bro culture. Mm-hmm. So we were starting to talk about this bro culture where, where if males bond together and in sport in particular, they start to kind of form groups. We wanted to avoid that and be, no, we need to get male and women, men and women working together. We need to, Um, start to create a culture of inclusivity and that in the classroom or outside of the classroom, the women in our program have equally the same amount of um, knowledge or credibility or experience or skill set as the males do. There's an, there is, there is no difference. So we really wanted to make sure that, that we are trying to get that out and get that straight. I have, the reason why I say that too, is I started women in sports, GXS lab, women in sports first. I came out with that, uh, concept essentially because I started to hear that there was more and more issues with some of our women that were looking for more mentorship or a place to be, to be heard or, or a place to feel like they could have a woman to talk to. Mm. And I've, I really feel as though that we've opened it up 
um, but I think we could, I definitely think we could do better. That's why when I heard that you're doing uh, Unbenched, I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is amazing. How can I help? Count me in as advisor. And I'm sure, as I said, I'm going to ask Dr. Welter to be involved. And how can we yeah. help you? Because this is huge. We need this. We've got amazing male leaders, like a Colin Darling, as an example. Who, oh, I love him so and, much. I don't know if he's going to listen to this, but just Colin Darling. Oh, he's moment great. Right now. Last year, Adam Iafredi, Matt Pacino, Christian Ryan, Sean Addis. Uh, we have, I'm, I'm naming the men because we've got so many amazing, uh, Anton Senderak, you know, there's Mustafa, there's a number of different people who are phenomenal and really supportive of women in the program. I would say, I, I don't know this to be true. I would say that in the first and the second year, I heard more from the women not the second year, sorry, the second graduating year, the first year and the third year, the one that the group that just graduated that the from young women, this is not for me and from other fellow professors and just in general that the, maybe there was a little bit more bro culture than, than was, than what we wanted to have or that we were hoping to cultivate as a culture. Yeah. So what is that what you're hearing? Or I'm hoping that I don't yeah. see that the same and, and right now, but I may be wrong. Yeah, I mean, it definitely because I remember sitting at open house and I was expecting to have to submit a portfolio and write a bunch of things because to me, that was just what university was. And then they said it was grades only and my heart left my body. It left the room. Sean Haswell was like, yeah, there's 700 applicants, sport media this year. They're only looking at your grades. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go back to Montreal right now because um, I had been working so hard to build up my resume to be able to impress people enough to get into the program. That was my whole logic. Um, and there was a lot of us that once we got in, we started talking. We're like, yeah, that's really weird that we were grades only. And then I remember bringing that up to Joe in a meeting and he walked me through the reasoning and he, he explained the bias factor and looking at it that way, it made so much sense because I don't think as a woman, like me personally, I never would have been intimidated by that because I knew how much experience I had. And I like, call me a cocky bitch all you want, but I knew how good I was. Um, but I definitely know that that's a rarity among women. So to hear the thought be put into it, to be like, how can we make this more equitable? I love that so much. And I appreciate that so much because I think we definitely see it in my year. I don't think it's exactly 50, 50, but maybe it's like 60, 40. Um, and when we started our first group chat, all the girls were like, Oh my God, there's more than three of us. And we made like a first year girls group chat. And now we're all in one chat, like all the girls. And it's just such an amazing environment that has come out of something that I think a lot of us were expecting to not be. Like I've always been one of the boys. I've I'm very comfortable in bro culture for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, but you I'm adapt. very. You do find a way to adapt. Exactly. Sure. I'm just very excited that I don't. I'm not forced to. That it feels very a lot more inclusive. And I mean, shout out to all the guys in my year who are supporting Unbenched and who are giving us little shout outs and we're buying our merch. Like that support means so so much um, to me. And I think, yeah, like hearing what you were saying from the beginning of the program to where it's at now, I think that's really encouraging and hopefully it continues to get better and we can get back to 50-50. Um, the other part too is that also in the interview process it is also a, a like an overwhelming known study and scholarship on this is that women say this, women use the word we, yeah, men use the word I, 
and I'm grossly generalizing here based on what on on my readings in scholarship. Okay, so I'm not saying all men. I am saying based on some readings, women. So let's say if you were to say, uh, and I'm not saying my colleagues would say this, but let's say sport talks. I would say we started sport talks. And it, men might say, I started sport talks or I did this and I did that. And I'm like, the, the, uh, although I don't believe my colleagues would do that. <laughs> I'm just giving this as, as an example only. And then you realize, hold on a second, there is a huge team of about 10 people that work on this. There's no one person that does it. And I would give a lot of credit, let's say to Chelsea, who is came up with the brand and came up with the design and is doing all the social. And then she's pulled a team together and Richard Coffey and Karina Mustafa, like, uh, yeah. Kai is working, uh, there's lots of people working on it. Then we get the people who are contributing and show up and then the people who speak so that women use the word I, men tend, or men, men excuse me, men use the word I, women tend to use the word we. So when you use the word we, when you're talking about your accomplishments for a job or for admissions to university, we is not very strong because it doesn't take ownership for you creating. So there's a disadvantage. The second disadvantage is the bias that potentially we have, and we don't even realize we have it. We tend to, and this is something that, that I, I study, we tend to look at women for roles in hiring practices and say, here's all the things they don't have. And we to look at men and say, here's all the things they have. Yeah. So they may actually lack all their criteria, but we're so focused on what they have and we're so focused on women don't have. That's the second part. And then, of course, the third part is that we've created a barrier for people who want to work in the industry. Let's think about it this way. If you're in law school or medical school and you come in and say, I'd like to see everything you've done in medicine. I'd like to see everything you've done in in legal work before you came here. And they're not expecting you to do much. They're expecting you to have good grades, great, good LSATs, good MCATs, whatever happens to be and get in. So that bias right away is, oh my gosh, you see women saying, I sort of did a podcast. I sort (laughs) of did this. I sort of did that. And then men are like, oh, I did, 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 did X, Y, and Z. And, and, and so, so right away we've put women at a disadvantage. Yeah, for sure. I would hope people in medical school don't have tons of experience going into it. Cause like, I don't want an untrained doctor being like, yeah, I've done like six surgeries and it's like, you're 18, please tell yeah. me you're lying. Um, <laughs> so that's probably a good yeah. thing. Um, so outside of school and outside of, of the program and in the industry, more in general, what do you think has been kind of the biggest contributing factor to the shift towards less stereotyping? I think the fact, first of all, I don't, I still feel like we're moving at nano snail pace. Yes. (laughs) So that's the first. The second is that the fact that topics are more top of mind because of media that people can't hide from this, these topics anymore. And the fact Mm -hmm. that we need to make change when it comes to race and gender and sexual orientation and ability and, and creed and religion and, and, and more. So there is what a colleague of mine calls the accountability factor. So there's an accountability there. What I am seeing currently right now is this overwhelming sense of fear that middle-aged white male, cisgender males have as we go through these movements and these changes and hopefully long-term systemic changes. 
that's what I'm seeing right now is that there's fear that their jobs can be taken away. It's fear that they are going to be called out for behaviors that were acceptable in the past, that there's going to be consequences to those behaviors. Now, by saying that, I'm not saying that everybody is going to, to, there may be fear. And then there's people who say, I am not going to make like unconsciously, I'm not going to be making any changes. I'm going to continue to do what I want. And that's also a problem. So I think that the fact that we continue to have dialogue, continue to have conversations, continue to make sure that we are talking about it top of mind. I have heard one thing I have heard in sport media over the years, and I've talked about this before. I I heard this. I couldn't believe I heard this is if I talk about a gender equity, I've heard from other people that they say, Oh, here she goes again. Here professor walls goes again. She's talking about gender equity. Like, can we get on with it? And I'm saying, I'm only going to get on with it. If we can, if, if there's equity. So that's, first of all, the other was the more that we build in EDI into the curriculum and what we do, what we can control, which is our ability to create curriculum, create experiences and enhance experience in the classroom to bring speakers into the classroom that are, that are, um, representative of marginalized groups that are also moving agendas forward, those are going to allow us to continue to make change because we're going to be graduating the students of the future that can have that impact. Yeah. And that's where I really see that our, our, our capacity, plus also, of course, the people that we bring in as QP instructors from the industry, the speakers that we bring in and then of course our scholarship so the the work that we're doing is is getting that knowledge out sport talks with sport prof is a perfect example we 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 break down difficult issues and we have those difficult conversations and we have very healthy debate debate sometimes to understand because we had a conversation the other day myself and i've worked with two phd students and we the conversation we had it was for an hour was we have it every week for an hour, but we talk about gender equity, the work we're doing, we're writing a book, we're writing a, a, a project with an organization. And in the book in particular, the conversation was kept coming up overwhelmingly. Do you put a capital W with white, the word white, white privilege, Mm -hmm. white people. And do you put it with black? Is there a capital B with Black Lives Matter or the, the black community or a black person. So those we, we, we're, there's times when we're educating ourselves and how, but, but debating those conversations. And that's the whole thing about the critical thinking, really understanding what society wants and the integration of what scholarship is, is, is researching and learning and not being afraid to have those conversations. So we're, we've got this ability to have those conversations and that's the power of, academia. Yeah. And we can then take that into the classroom and hopefully have those discussions with students in a safe environment where we're, we're saying like, what do you think? What, this is what the society is saying. This is what the industry is saying. This is what scholarship is saying. What are we, what are we going to do? Yeah, absolutely. And what are the perspectives? So I am a white person and I need the perspective of white men, white women. I need the perspective of black men, black, 
black women. I need the perspective of women and men of color. I need the perspective. I need everybody's perspective to be able to formulate what are we all like, what does everyone feel comfortable with? Because I can't make that decision. And yeah. it's not my right to make that decision and nor should I have that privilege to make that decision. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think just you mentioned like sport talks with the debates. I think that is like such an amazing platform that you've created. But also when you say like um, people go like, oh, Prof Walls is going off about gender equity again. I remember when I was in college, I had written my pen is mightier than your dick, which was my like breakout article about how I'm like sick of your stereotypes and then I had wanted to do something else kind of along those lines but it was like very different it was about more of like a story than just an opinion and someone was like oh but you wrote about that like three weeks ago and I was like yeah and we didn't solve gender equity in three weeks so like excuse me um and it was also happened to be like a white man and I'm like you literally are like you're the reason we're having to write about these articles constantly Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's also very telling the people who kind of roll their eyes being like, oh, we're talking about this again. And it's like, well, yeah, because we're all trying to get equal to the status that you've kind of reserved for yourself and you're not sharing with anyone else. We Um, had, we, I agree with you. And I think I like what you said is it's not going to be solved in three weeks. And by the way, that your comment just makes, just reiterates why I need to write this again. (laughs) And sometimes I need to write it and put it out 10 times before you get it the first time. Yeah. So that's the other thing I find that, you know, the messages need to get out like that. The other, I I had this, we had one of the sport talks, we talked about, I think it was with Tara Sloan and we were talking about gender equity and how in sport broadcasting sport in Canada, in sport media organizations, the number of women represented in media in terms of sports represented was three was um, 4%. So there was a, it's four today, it's 4% and everybody's celebrating that 4%. And I am not celebrating that 4% because not even six months ago, it was at 3%. And by the way, was it, it's been at 3% for 20 years. Ouch. So if you're 3% of what is, so what sometimes a percentage could be that you added one game, <laughs> right? What yeah. I need to know, I need to know the numbers that I can understand the percentages. Yeah. And I really think that any organization that has an increase of 1%, if it's revenue and as an, as an example, they're not going to be very happy with that. Yeah. And the one, I, I just, I, that, that 1%. And I guess what other people are saying to me is be happy about the fact that you're seeing progress. I'm like, I'm not going to be happy about 1%. Yeah, no, I'm not going to be happy with crumbs when Ex- like you have an entire cake. Like that's exactly. Not what we're doing here. I'm not ex- the way you said it, Casey, exactly. Don't expect me to celebrate that. That is not yeah. celebratable. Now, if that meant that the WNBA got an extra whatever uh, airtime, then yes, I am. I, I mean, in those kind of, sm- I'm still celebrating that. That is, yeah. that's fantastic. That's great because by way, it's going to grow the game. Yeah. It's going to grow the revenues. It's going to mean that women are going to get paid more. It's going to mean all those things, but I am not going to be the first, uh, when I see five, six, seven, 10%, uh, 20%, 30, whatever. Gen- I mean, I don't think I, it, I, unfortunately in my lifetime, I'll never see 50%, but maybe that's, you know, there's a lot of other factors that are involved, which I'm also a business person and I understand the revenue side of things and I get mm-hmm. the economics and I get how uh, the stakeholders and how all that works. Yeah, I, I am not 
immune to that. However, don't expect me to celebrate 1%. Exactly. And or, I think, or, or give you kudos and celebrate and pat you on the back for that. Because that's, 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 that's the other thing is people are expecting a gold medal for doing the absolute bare minimum. And I'm like, no, that's not how that works. Like, congratulations, you hired a woman. I'm not about to name you like company of the year. But I feel it, like that's yeah. what people expect. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, switching gears, going back to talking more about you. Um, so you were the chair of the CWHL board of directors. So how did that happen? How did you end up there? We could do a whole podcast on that. (laughs) Not how I got hired, but the whole CWHL start to finish literally. Yeah. The, I, this is all the power of networking and being known, I guess, in the industry. So I was on the board of governors of George Brown college. Mm -hmm. And one of the other fellow, one of my fellow governors had told me about, had called me about the CWHL and said that there was some need for some sponsorship marketing revenue generation and that he wanted to put me in touch with someone named Brad Morris, who was the chair of the board of the CWHL. It just so happened if we were to rewind a couple of years ago when I was at the NHL, I was pitching the president of AIG insurance, Peter, his name is Peter McCarthy, if I'm not mistaken. And Peter had, he was, he was on a, I think he was on the board or a big donor of ladies first foundation, which is basically a fund, a a foundation that raises millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't know the amount, but a lot or a significant, no, uh, a a significant amount of money for women, for, for women Olympians who are, I I believe that play hockey. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't know my facts straight. Anyway, Brad was, uh, Peter was involved with Brad. So he brought Brad as his guest. I had invited Peter because I was pitching him to all-star. He brought Brad as his guest and I had met him years ago at all-star in Ottawa or Montreal, one of the two. And so there was a bit of a seven degrees or eight degrees of separation. Yeah. So I, they, I, I, I had the conversation in terms of potentially consulting in that space to them. And they came back saying, we'd like you to be on the board. So um, instead of getting money to consult, I did it for free (laughs) as volunteer. So that all happened. And we just over time working with the board, uh, I ended up getting voted as the chair and uh, that's all that, how how about it happened. And now the rest is literally yeah. History. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that's like really interesting just cause you, like you briefly mentioned that you worked in the NHL, but I feel like a lot of people would see going from the NHL to being involved with the CWHL as a little bit of like a downgrade. Um, so I was wondering, do you have anything to say to those people? Oh God. Other, other than like F off, but you know, something yeah. eloquent. <laughs> I don't, I wouldn't even understand what that means. Not at all. Whoever says that, that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, uh, No, not even remotely makes sense. That's that's the most asinine, stupidest thing I've ever heard, actually. So the, not at all. I mean, the women's league, the women players have the best players in the world. Half the women that were playing in the CWHL are playing in the gold medal game of the Olympics and have, you know, there's, there's, uh, or the silver medal or bronze medal from Finland and from, you know, and then there was the deal with China. So not at all. This, this, this is a league that is growing at the time up and coming and putting women's hockey uh, out there and trying to build that there was a lot of 
of behind the scenes, administrative, structural, economic risk, financial issues. Okay. So yeah. there was, a, there's issues that, that clearly panned out to be the point where we had to just shut it down. And, and also, by the way, we, we cease and desisted operations April 1st, 2019, 2019. Mm-hmm. And it, the board just voted on, I don't remember the date. I want to say December 10th, 2020, that we finally just ceased operations officially. There's nothing CWH. It took us almost a year, close to to a year and three quarters for our board of volunteers and directors to shut it down. Wow. That's, it's a lot of work. There was legal work. There was financial work. There was political work. There was um, administrative stuff we had to do. And I'm not going to get into the list, but it took that long and we just voted and it's officially over. That didn't occur until December 10th, 2020 ish or whatever that date was. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, no, not at all. I mean, this, this, this league and, and women's hockey is not at all a down it's, it's a, to me, it was an up, it was an opportunity to see growth and to Mm -hmm. contribute to the women's game and, uh, to be able to take what I learned, let's say at the NHL and take governance of what I have been doing over at George Brown College and at the Toronto Pan and Sports Center and apply that. So it's about people who have experience and what kind of skill set and experience they bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And we 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 made a new board. We had some phenomenal board members, a woman from that serves on the board of Bank of Canada, a man who was the vice chair of CIBC board. Um you know, some seat, like we've a woman who's on the Olympic board. We've got phenomenal, wow. phenomenal, uh, phenomenal board members. And it, uh, I won't get into the details of that, but yeah, really great, yeah. great team of people, but no, that, that uh, uh, women's hockey is, is got a lot of potential. Absolutely. What do you, but, but, but it's also tons of pol- politics. Oh, for sure. Um, so like kind of speaking of the politics and the potential, what did you learn the most from your time in that position in terms of women in sports and the landscape surrounding them. Oh my gosh, Casey, this is a whole other, I'd love to come back and talk to you about this. This is, let's do a whole other podcast. Okay. I learned so much. I would like, I, oh my gosh, I cannot even begin to tell you. And I, I, there's things that I would have done differently Mm -hmm. for sure. And as an example, not doing the China deal, that was in my, my opinion, not the right decision. Okay. And that's in retrospect. And, but although I did, I didn't vote for it. So um, that's, if I recall the conversations, I was not a fan of it for multiple reasons. Mm-hmm. And, but, but the one thing that I would say, I learned a ton, but it's also specifically to what we're talking about gender and sports. And is that I think that women still need to continue to stick by women and we don't enough. Mm-hmm. I think that we, unfortunately that the women, that women's sports cannot exist on its own unless it exists under a male organization is unfortunate. Yeah. And until that changes, I don't see why the league couldn't have been viable, mm-hmm. but um, I just wish that, I, I do wish that women stuck more with women. Fair enough. I think that is definitely a statement that can apply to 
multiple areas in mm-hmm. life. Um, when you joined the the league and the board, did you ever expect a shutdown to happen, especially no. kind of the way it did? No, no, never, never when I first joined. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. I, <laughs> I did when I did first join and I did my due diligence about the organization. There were a few few people telling me what they felt the gaps were within the organization and the areas that it needed help and areas of strengths and areas for improvement. And so I was aware of that and uh, no, there's no way, no way. Yeah. The answer is unequivocally no. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, (laughs) So how much of, of what you did and kind of the lessons you learned and the hardships of it shutting down, how much of that sticks with you and guides the work that you do now towards gender equity? It does. I, because fundamentally, so, so having to make one of the most difficult hour, all of us, the whole board, I mean, this was a board decision to make the one of the most difficult decisions that we had to make. We had to make those responsibilities based on fiduciary responsibilities, risk, legal ethics. It was our responsibility as a board to make sure that we had a viable, financially viable organization. This was not the, the, you know, as much as I love the game and as much as I love the women and as much as I love the sport and as much as I see potential and we were in growth area, I can't, we as a board, of course, those were difficult decisions that we had to make. And by the way, we had to lay off so many people. It was heartbreaking, genuinely heartbreaking. However, as a business person and our responsibilities for the league, the way that governance is run in sport organizations in our country that was not a, we, we didn't have that um what is that word i'm looking for a word right now but uh, we couldn't we it, it was what hmm, how do i say it we didn't have that luxury yeah the money wasn't there and there was issue there there was a lot of risk that was associated and uh, those were the, deci- the decisions that had to be made. So uh, yeah, th- it was a very, very difficult decision. And I take that with me every day because somebody who, as I said at the beginning of this, this podcast, and is that gender equity and fighting for women's rights is in my DNA. And there I was having to make a decision with a number of my colleagues. My only have one vote, but I am, I was chair of the board. And so there's, there's a leadership um, position there too. And, and I take, you know, we, and I take full accountability for, for, for what happened. I think that I continue to advocate on making sure that we, we need more women supporting women and the, the, we, uh, we just need more money. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I'm like, where am I going with this? We need more money. That's Women's a fair assessment. Sports needs more money, you know, but that's it. Like we need money. So yeah. I, I I am, I, I am like anybody I'm thinking to myself, how is it that in this country, in Canada, women's hockey is struggling to make it. I, if you, if you just think about that, you should be scratching your head and we should all just be like, what the hell is going on with the system that we can't make this work. That is the thing that we're, we're, we're sitting around the table going, I can't not believe this. Now I'm always being very careful because there's a lot of different things that are involved and trust me, there's a lot of people that criticize me and wanted my head and, and very upset with me and never want to talk to me again and never want to do business with me again and are angry at me for the downfall of like a big organization. And that is unfortunate. 
yeah. because it's not one person. It's there's a lot of different factors that are involved that 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 we put a letter out and I stand by that letter without getting into too many details. But yeah, I, 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 I it's, it, it unfortunately still bothers me that that was what had ha- what had happened. But at the same time, we take it, we learn from it, we move on. And the only thing we can do is the next organization or the mm-hmm. next league or the next or whatever is how do we, how do we put certain things in place that that doesn't happen again? And part of it is going to have to be challenging our systems and structures and sport and how we view women's sport in general and at every level, Absolutely. at every level. Yeah, for sure. Um, So changing gears a little bit to something that is a little bit more successful and is still around, GXS Lab. Um, So can you explain a little bit about kind of what that is, what the objective is or was with GXS Lab that you're running over at Ryerson? Can you just explain that to listeners? Okay. First of all, I was inspired by a dear friend of mine, Dr. Louis Etienne Dubois, who is in creative industries. And he was telling me about this new research hub that was opening up in FCAD called the Catalyst and that there were so many so many positions, I guess, for a lab and that we had to apply for it. And he encouraged me to apply and he's got a lab called Foley, which is Future of Live Entertainment. So I did and I went to Charles, our dean and, and, and Charles Davis, our head of assistant uh, dean of research and to the person who was the director of the lab at the time and put my case forward. And they said, yes, you can have a research lab in sport media. So I created the GXS lab, which is the global experiential sport lab. And it is the intersection between scholarly work and industry practice, because that is who I am as a person. I did industry first before I went into scholarship. And so that makes sense. Plus also, in my opinion, that I attended a conference my very first year at Ryerson. I attended a conference in London, UK, and I flew all that way and 10 people, including Joe. So that'd be nine people showed up to my, my speech about, I was, I was uh, writing a paper on, on gender equity and, and, uh, revenue and women's endorsements and what they get in terms of like sponsorship endorsements and stuff. And I presented and only nine people showed up to my to my speech. And I thought, okay, well that, I, how am I going to disseminate the knowledge that I have in the space? And how do I also drive research to my, to the lab? And how do I also drive revenue? And at the same time, enhance the student learning outside of the classroom and get projects that we can work on with industry that students can work on, get experience, and also have maybe have an opportunity to network a little bit. And maybe there's a job out there for them afterwards and also build the credibility of the sport program. Because as I said, you said earlier, it's, it's still fairly new. Yeah. And at the time in its infancy. So I created a lab and the model is, I'm actually writing a piece on this right now is for publication, which is the reason why it's so successful is because it is a flat organization. Of course, I'm leading it in with giving direction to different people and, and have created the strategy for the lab. And I'm the one who's working with PhD students and myself and, and corporations to be able to drive the revenue because it's a fee-based model mm-hmm. is to give students the experience and empower them. So we work with a core group of undergraduate students, first and second year, they get volunteer hours, creative practice hours. If you get to third year, some of you, depending on the project, but generally fourth year start to get paid and managing the project. So yeah. Kaylin Noonan, as an example, has been involved with me for three years, two and a half years, and he is now managing clients, managing the projects himself, and he has a team. So 
the we 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 bring students forward that want to maybe improve their craft or try something different that maybe the university doesn't provide and and then also they get that one-on-one training and mentorship for me when we meet week after week absolutely so it's great we've got we've had some phenomenal partners are really busy and you know, I was criticized at the beginning, not, in a, not, not overly criticized, but the very first couple of the first year I did a lot of, I'll say events, Okay, more event marketing where we would have guest speakers come in. We try to get as many students as possible in the catalyst in the physical space to hear people speak. And the reason why I did that was because I needed to have content and I needed to have something to um, something tangible for, yeah. for people to see of what we're doing in the lab. So that was year one. Year two was then getting the projects and year three. Now we've got 89 undergraduate students somewhat involved in the lab. Wow. Plus I have PhD, MBAs, masters of digital media and masters of media production involved. So we have about 110 people that are involved. So what are some of the gender equity and diversity initiatives that you've started through the lab? I have uh, the the one in, so we, we started she's for we started a partnership with she's for sports and it, we did a be bold series with Ianka Jess it was her series that we partnered <clears throat> so we had four events three at the catalyst and one virtual where we had basically a number of female speakers who are in their field doing very well in their field or an underdog in their field who like these jewel of women phenomenal people that we had to find and hear from they came forward we did the hijabi ballers, which is also celebrating Muslim women in sport and a very amazing group of women that have are huge fans of Raptors basketball. And when the, the reason why I say that is because I was interested, I'm saying, wait a second. So I'm I'm an advocate for gender, but I'm also quite interested in this group because there's an intersectionality also with religion and creed and the fact that professional sports team like the Raptors is realizing, Hey, wait a second. Here is a whole new audience segment. There is a, a large group of women in the GTA that are fans. How do we target them differently? These are the, the hijabi ballers as an example. So they're playing sport, they're participating in sport. They, they are watching sport. They go to Raptors games and, you know, how do we make sure that these women at the grassroots level are entering and participating and playing basketball, but also have those opportunities. So that's of interest. And then the most recent is a relationship that we did with Rogers Sportsnet last year, which is a Sportsnet gender equity and diversity scholarship. There's a lot going on. We've got a, a number of different projects. And then the other one, I will launch it here because I want it to be the first, we're going to be doing a very big launch. We are uh, going to be doing multiple languages in sport. So we are, we're going to be working with doing Punjabi sport talks and Punjabi GXS lab. We're writing articles in different languages. We're giving students other opportunities to be able to doing things in different languages and looking at and having that experience as well. And we'll be talking a lot more about that, but we have launched it somewhat internally with a small group of people, but we're going to be doing a big push shortly. So we're really excited about that. My gosh, that's so cool. On that note, I will let you get to whatever you have to get to. Thank you so, so much for this conversation. Um, There's so much to learn from you. Definitely going to have to bring you back onto the podcast. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much. 
Yeah, I loved this. I'm really happy for you. I love Unbenched. Awesome. And let's part, partner with us at GXS Lab to do something together for sure yes. and or uh, support you or whatever that happens to be. So that's all for today's episode of the Unbenched podcast. Head on over to our socials to let us know if you want to hear another episode with Laurel where we deep dive into the CWHL or just give us an idea of who you want to hear from on the pod. Um, I hope you enjoyed hanging out with Laurel and me today and were able to learn something from her or even just have a little bit of a laugh. So until next time, don't forget to speak sports like a girl.